0: Please take out your Bibles tonight, if you would, and turn to the gospel according to John chapter nine, if you haven't already kind of guessed that from those handouts that I gave you or that you were given as you came in tonight. This past Wednesday evening, I had the privilege of being in Pryor and being a part of their Wednesday night summer series on the miracles of Jesus. And the one that I had the privilege of presenting was about the boy born blind in John, chapter 9. It's one of my favorites because, as we discuss it, you will see that there's a lot of essential insights and practical applications for today's Christian. In fact, I'm going to supply you with about a dozen, and they're all on that sheet with some room to take a few notes, other references that will be coming along with that. As I said, I love this because it's got a lot of application for us. If you'll begin with me in John chapter nine, open to that passage, first thing I'd like to point out is not only is this whole account about this boy born blind unique to the gospel according to John, but it is also the only recorded instance of someone being healed who was blind from birth in the entire scripture. That's alluded to sort of in John 9, 32, but we'll get there later the essential insight and practical application number one has to do with the fact that this incident comes immediately on the heels of the religious leaders in the temple wanting to stone Jesus. But even with such overwhelming personal problems, even though they wanted to stone him, Jesus' first concern was not for himself, but He's looking for the opportunity to alleviate somebody else's sufferings instead. If you will notice, it says in John 8 and verse 59, Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Chapter 9 and verse 1 says, And as he passed by, or now as Jesus passed by. This is immediately on the heels of them wanting to stone him. But his concern is not for himself. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. You know, Jesus did the same thing, whether we talk about his needing to get away after he heard about the death of John the Baptist, or when we talk about the thief on the cross, or whether we talk about his mother and John. In all of those situations, Jesus was suffering in some form or another, and yet his concern was always for another's suffering in those situations. In John chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, it goes on to say, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Common school of thought among the Jews is if you were born with this sort of affliction, you'd been this terrible sinner of some sort. Now, if they'd really thought about it, they probably wouldn't have asked that question because, If he's blind from birth, how could that be the result of some sin before birth? Stop and think about it. So it would have had to have been that the parents sinned, at least in their line of thinking. And the thing that I want for us to keep in mind is that, you know, sometimes in scripture we do see people that are smitten, as it were, because of sin. We see people that suffer because of their own tampering with sin. For example, we see Miriam, the sister of Moses, in number twelve, uh, Numbers 12. We see King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. We see King David in 2 Samuel 11 and following, as well as Zacharias in Luke 1 and others who do suffer some consequences because of sin or their own actions. And even today, have you ever been tempted to ask yourself when you're going through something difficult? even, even <clears throat> half seriously what did I do to deserve this and so sometimes children even suffer as a natural biological result of their parents sin you get those with HIV or all of these things with parents and sometimes the children do suffer consequences of their parents sin but Jesus makes it abundantly clear that this is not the case here this is not the reason for this man's suffering In fact, scripture goes on in several different places to try to get across to us the truth that not all suffering is the result of somebody's sin. Not all suffering is always the direct result of someone's depth of personal sin. For example, do you remember the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices? The 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and the Lord's teaching on this very subject in Luke chapter 13, one through five? wasn't because they were bad people they suffered that affliction that brings us to essential insight in practical application point number two not all suffering occurs because one is necessarily doing something wrong in fact it is exactly the opposite and we need to understand that sometimes suffering comes about at least in the scriptures because somebody's doing something right Sometimes it is because God wants to use you and your situation as a tool to bring glory and honor to Him. Did you ever think of that? Sometimes God wants to use you to bring glory and honor to Him so He allows certain things to happen. Isn't that what happened with Job? Remember Job? Job chapter 2 and verse 3, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Job was a good guy. Job didn't suffer because he'd done something horrible. Job suffered because God says, I got a good one there and I can trust him. What a compliment. Wouldn't you love to have God say that about you? I got one there that I know can handle this and I'm going to use their situation. How many of you have ever been encouraged by the Book of Job? Right? Why? God used that situation of a good man, a righteous man, a just man, and he allowed him to be afflicted so that we could benefit from that. There are other places. In John 9, uh, John 9, 3 is also reminiscent of Lazarus' sickness and his subsequent death in John 11. You know what Jesus says there in John 11 and verse 4? He speaks of Lazarus, and he says, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus said the whole reason Lazarus was allowed to die was so that God could be glorified through it. And did God get glory through that? Absolutely. In John 11:45, 45, after Lazarus was raised, it says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. God used that situation to bring himself glory. Of course, the most obvious example of the fact that suffering is not necessarily the result of personal wrongdoing is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Oh, how he suffered. He didn't do anything wrong, Isaiah 53. Moving on, John 9, verses 4 and 5. Uh, uh, John chapter 9, I'm sorry, verse 3. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Then Jesus goes on to say, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, as long as I'm here, I'm gonna do God's will. In John 4:34, Jesus had said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. That's how we glorify God, is by finishing the work he gave us to do. That's what it says in John 17 and verse 4. Jesus also confirmed that as long as he was in the world, he was going to do the Father's will in John 6 and verse 38. It wasn't something that Jesus just did, it's who he was as the light of the world. And you know what? Jesus made it very clear in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, that his disciples are to be the light of the world as well. What that means is that we are to continually interject the light of God's word into the lives of those who are walking in darkness. Which brings us to essential insight and practical application number three. We're not just to exhibit Christian behavior Sundays in church. Tuesday night at the ball game Thursday morning at the water cooler Friday night after work and Saturday afternoon and evening with friends and family always looking for opportunities to illuminate as the lights that Jesus wants us to be their darkness helping them to finally see him even though they may have been blind to who God is all their lives verses 6 and 7 when he had said these things, Jesus spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. <laughs> Think about this. Why the dirt and the spit? Answer: We don't know. But we do know a couple of other things. We do know that Jesus didn't really need to use dirt and spit, right? Jesus could heal over long distances. He could heal without physical means. Matthew 8, 5 through 13. We know that. And can you imagine the pain? Think about this. You ever get something in your eye you just couldn't get out, and your eye waters and it swells, and you're like, oh man, that's irritating, and you just can't get rid of it? Jesus picked this up and rubbed dirt in the guy's eyes. You got that? That must have been painful. If somebody picked up dirt and rubbed it in your eyes, would you do what they said? Think about it. The word anointed here, where he rubbed or anointed the man's eyes, that word anointed means rubbed on. Why would he do that? Why would he do something so painful to this man? I believe that leads us to essential insight and practical application number four. Real faith always reveals itself in real obedience, no matter how painful the process, or else it doesn't receive the promised reward. Sometimes Jesus asks us to do things that hurt. But real faith is shown in real obedience, even if it hurts. I'm telling you, it took some real faith to go and do what a guy told you to do who's just put dirt in your eye. But this is not dissimilar to some of the things as we read Hebrews 11 that we see that those had who did things by faith. As we consider the lives of some of those great heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Moses, they went through some painful experiences. By faith, they did some things that cost them. It's also worthy to note that there was nothing supernatural in the dirt, it was just dirt. There was nothing supernatural in the spit even though it was Jesus's there was nothing magical in the water of that particular pool anything that any more than there was anything magical or supernatural in the waters of the Jordan where Naaman was told to go dip any more than there's anything magical in the water of the baptistry where we're told to go and be immersed for the forgiveness of our sins there's nothing magical in the water it's just simply that we obey God because that's what God said And when we obey God, God blesses us. This young man, nothing magical in the dirt, he just went and did it. Verses eight and nine. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, isn't this he who sat and begged? Someone said, this is he. And others said, he's like him. He said, I'm he. (laughs) That brings us to essential insight and practical application number five. When one has enough real faith to respond in real obedience to God's requirements to obtain divine cleansing, the changes can be so startling as to even make former friends and acquaintances question who this new person actually is. When we come out of that water, we should rise up to walk in newness of life that doesn't look anything like the old person. And when we've been divinely cleansed, there are other passages such as 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Other passages such as 1 Peter 4, 1 through 5, that talks about how your former friends just aren't gonna understand this new life. You'll be unrecognizable. When this man confirmed his identity, they finally realized, hey, it's him. Look at verses 10 through 12. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. That brings us to essential insight and practical application number six. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. First Peter 3 and verse 15. And do not be afraid to say, I don't know. I don't know. If you truly don't know the answer to something, it is far better to just be straight up and and say, I don't know, but I will find you that answer. I'll find it. But I don't know. Verses 13 through 17, look what they say. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, wow, that's really great. No, that's not what they said. (laughs) This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? Did you notice the transition? Did you notice how they went from asking what Jesus had done to what's your opinion of him who did this? What's your opinion of him? What do you say about him? That brings us to essential insight, practical application number seven. When zealously religious but misled people refuse to accept, but still cannot des- deny the absolute truth before them, their next move is to seek to circumvent such divine and undeniable proof with a scurrilous smokescreen, often in the form of a personally directed attack. When people cannot deny what the Bible says, then all of a sudden, they'll either go after the messenger. Well, do you really believe that doesn't matter what I believe, this is what scripture says. Yeah, but do you really think, doesn't matter what I think, what does the scripture say? Yeah, but you can't really tell me that you, yeah, what does the scripture say? They'll start going all kinds of different directions, trying to find something wrong with the messenger or, or something when the truth is so undeniable they just can't get around it. And I love the man's answer. He said, last line of verse 17, he is a prophet. I don't know how many times I read this story before I saw the the transition. Did you notice the transition? The progression of this man's faith. In verse 11, Jesus is referred to as a man. In verse 17, he's referred to as a prophet. And in verse 38, he is Lord. The more this story develops and the more this young man thinks about Jesus, he goes from being a man to a prophet to Lord. Verse 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. You know, like so many that we may try to study with today, When the truth is is staring them straight in the face and they still refuse to accept or believe it, they'll try again to employ all kinds of other means. I mean, they don't believe the truth. I mean, there he is, and and that's who he is, but they don't believe him, so they're, they're looking for another way around it. So they call in his parents. You know, Jesus would call these religious leaders blind, not only at the conclusion of this chapter but throughout his ministry matthew chapter 15 and verse 14 he calls them blind five times in matthew 23 he calls them blind he calls them blind guides blind pharisees and blind fools twice in that chapter why because it is they it is these pharisees who have closed their own eyes matthew chapter 13 Verses 14 and 15. It is they who have closed their own eyes, they've blinded their own eyes to the truth that's right in front of them. It's they who are blind. And they don't see it. Verse 19. And they asked them, that is the parents, they asked them saying, is this your son whom you say was born blind? (laughs) Can't you almost just hear them being sarcastic? Is this your son whom you say was born blind? Sounds sort of like prosecuting attorneys, don't they? How then does he see now? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son. Well, there you go. (laughs) That's one of those "does" statements in scripture. We know this is our son. You, You know your own family, right? We know this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age, ask him, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he's of age, ask him. We don't have anything today that quite equals what it meant to be kicked out of the synagogue. The synagogue was not just the center of religious activity, but of social activity, of, of economic activity. I mean, it was everything. You got kicked out of the synagogue, you might as well go live in the desert by yourself. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't work as one of the tradesmen amongst the Jews. There was all kinds of different attachments to this thing. It wasn't just merely you can't worship here anymore, go down the road to you know, the next It wasn't like that in fact it was such a terrible thing to be kicked out of the synagogue that even some of the leaders believed in jesus but they would not confess that they believed in jesus because of this very thing they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue john chapter 12 verses 42 and 3. and that brings us to essential insight and practical application number eight sometimes even the most beloved and trusted family members will desert deny and to some degree abandon or throw us under the bus when we confess and fall in love with the truth concerning the lord jesus christ this is due to their fear of fallout from their lifelong religious group and their deceived religious leadership sometimes if you didn't grow up in the church and you fall in love with Jesus and the truth and, and your family may be two or three generations in a religion other than what the Bible says and you fall in love with Jesus and you just want to do his will and you are baptized into Christ and you become part of his church. Sometimes there are family members who will throw you under the bus like this young man's parents because of fear of the religious leaders that they knew and not wanting to suffer their, their wrath. They said, he's of age, ask him. That's the very reason they said that. You know what Psalm 27, 10 says? When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Verse 24. So again, they called the man who was blind, and they said to him, give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. Now, whether they were saying give God the glory like taking an oath, or whether they meant give God the glory instead of this man who did this. Either way, not sure. But they wanted him to give God the glory and not this man that they, quote unquote, knew was a sinner. And did you notice in verse 20 they say, they say I'm sorry, not in verse 20. Did you notice how in verse 24 they say, we know that this man is a sinner based on what? Think about this. Based on what? Like so many misled religious leaders today, based on what? Not the word of God. Certainly wasn't based on the word of God that he was a sinner. You know, it's sort of like these TV shows today or these commercials. You're even watching something on you know, history or Nat Geo or, or something, and, and you're just watching a movie or some documentary, and they'll say, with all the confidence in the world, six billion years ago, like it's fact like they know we know that 30 million years no you don't because to say that you deny god almighty you weren't there you don't know you haven't got a clue you didn't find that in god's word that's not what it says no you don't know but they were so confident that jesus was a sinner verse 25 this young man answered said whether He's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. I love this young man's attitude. That brings us to essential insight and practical application number nine. When confronted by hostile religious forces, do not get caught up in their slanderous, emotional, or evasive maneuvers. Simply stick to the facts. Just stick to the truth of God, the whole truth of God, and nothing but the truth of God. Just stick with the word of God. Don't get carried away in all of that other stuff. This man, he said, look, I don't know if he's sin or not, but I'm going to tell you what I do know. I can see you now. And he knew that, and that was all he needed. Verse 26. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open (laughs) your eyes? This young man had been asked this question over and over. He's been asked this question in verse 10. He's been asked this question in verse 15. And in sticking with the truth, he challenged their convictions at the same time with a truth they could not refute. And brethren, that's what we need to do. We need to challenge people's convictions, even when they're sure they know something, we need to challenge their convictions with a truth they cannot refute. It was basically the same group later on that would be forced to admit the same thing when Peter healed a man formerly lame from his mother's womb in Acts 3. It's the same group of Pharisees that say in chapter 4 and verse 16 of Acts, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. How can you deny it when it's right in front of you? They couldn't deny Lazarus' resurrection. They couldn't deny that this boy has gotten his sight, and they couldn't deny that that man had been healed in Acts 3. Wow. Wow. Verse 27, (laughs) he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I can see this guy. You also want to become his disciples? Is that why you're asking? Like I said, I think he would had about enough. He knew what he knew. And this brings us to essential insight and practical application number 10. This one is a very difficult to accept but no less essential truth than any of the others, and that is this. There comes a time when we must understand that certain people, and especially some of the staunchest, most zealous, devout, and deceived religious leaders are just not gonna listen to the truth of God that we have for them. And it's time to stop casting our pearls before swine. I know that's hard, but that's what Jesus said wipe the dust off your feet and move on matthew 7 verse 6 matthew 10 verse 5 through 23 i want us to understand that jesus not only taught those strong words jesus lived them jesus went through something very similar to this with herod in luke 23 8 through 11. herod wanted to perform some trick and jesus just wanted to do it because he knew that's all herod wanted herod wasn't interested in truth so he didn't bother the apostle paul did the same thing with the people of Pisidian Antioch, according to Acts 13, through 46. Paul didn't judge those people unworthy of eternal life. He said, because you reject the word of God, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And he said, we're going somewhere else. We also are told to do the same thing, Titus 3, 9 through 11, and 2 John, 9 through 11. Look at verses 28 and 9. Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, and as for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. <laughs> Again, we know, we know, they didn't know anything. But they were convinced they did. The fact is, as if they had truly believed in Moses, They'd have believed in Jesus, John 5, verses 45 through 47. But they didn't even believe in Moses, whom they claimed to, because Jesus had said earlier in his ministry, if you did, you'd believe in me. But they didn't. you know, it's like so many religious leaders today who claim to believe the scriptures. Listen, if they did, if they truly believed the scriptures, they truly knew the scriptures and believed them, they'd all be part of the Lord's church, wouldn't they? because the Lord's church is the one in the scriptures. They'd all believe that baptism is essential for salvation because that's what the scripture says, right? And by faith, we accept what the scripture says and then we do it, that's what faith is. But unfortunately, these folks here, like so many today, know not the scriptures nor the power of God, Matthew 22, verse 29. Look at me in verse 30. The man answered and said to them, why this is a marvelous thing. I wonder, sometimes I'm telling you, I'd like to have been there to heard the voice, the voice and the way it came out. Why this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. I love the way brother Lonnie Ritchie in his layman's simple commentary on the New Testament illustrates or paraphrases this young man's words he said i kind of think this is the idea of the young man's response let me read it to you the really amazing thing about this whole affair is not so much the miracle of healing as it is your ignorance you boast of your great knowledge but you are completely ignorant of this man who made me see this proves beyond doubt that you are not the wise and learned people you claim to be because if you were you of all people would know that no one or would know that one who can do what Jesus has done must be from God. And and he says that's kind of what he thinks that this young man was trying to get across to them. Look at verses 31 through 34. He continues, now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you're completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Brings us to practical application number 11. When highly educated but still thoroughly deceived religious leadership cannot deny the simple message of God in all of its truth, they will without fail turn their attention to destroying the messenger. They couldn't argue what had been done So they threw this guy out. They will resort to put downs and personal attacks. Think about it. Jesus, Stephen, Peter, Paul, Jeremiah, the apostles and the prophets, and all of those the Jews had persecuted for centuries serve as examples of this very truth, of this very application. When people cannot deny the message, they'll go after the messenger. You know what? Jesus said you and I would face the same thing. John chapter 15, verse 18, through chapter 16, verse 3. Moving on to John 9, 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? There's something in this verse that I don't want one of us to miss tonight. This verse is so crucial, it's easy to read right over it. Don't miss this verse. In John 9, in verse 35, It says very, very clearly, and when he had found him, he said to him. You know, it's hard to read that and not get the idea that Jesus went specifically looking for this guy. He didn't just happen to bump into him on the street. When he had found him indicates that Jesus had conducted a determined and deliberate search for this young man who had paid such a high price for his defense of the truth. Brings us to essential insight, practical application number 12. Jesus always rewards the personal sacrifices. Don't miss this, church. The personal sacrifices of those who maintain their faithfulness to him and his truth, no matter the personal cost or consequences. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. As Hebrews eleven six six promises us, He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Verses 36 through 38. He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Did you also notice that little word in verse 37 where Jesus says, you have both seen him. That wouldn't have been possible the day before. The proof is there. He said, you've seen him. This young man could see. First time in his life. And another question that comes to mind as we read this is, of all the people in this story, mom and dad, Pharisees, friends, or the boy born blind, If you could have been any one of those characters, which one would you have preferred to have been? Because before you jump in there and say, the boy born blind, consider this. They didn't have the situations like we have today with help for the blind like we have. They didn't have the schools and the the technology and all of those things service dogs. They just didn't have any of those sorts of things to help folks who were blind. And this poor blind person must have taken all their life that, that they'd done some great sin or their parents had. That was the way they reasoned and maybe they were a beggar all their life. Certainly we see blind beggars in the scripture because that's about all they could do. And, and so what a, what a limited life this young man must have led from birth, from birth. But if I look at all the characters in this story, Even having said all that, you know who I'd rather be? The young man born blind. you know why? Because he's the only one in the entire story who sees Jesus for who he truly is and winds up worshiping Jesus Christ. And that's worth everything. He's the only one that we see in this story who truly worships Jesus. And Jesus said, verse 39, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words, and they said to him, are we blind also? For me, that's the second duh question or comment. You gotta remember, these religious leaders look down their noses at everybody else. They considered themselves to be the most learned righteous, upstanding religious people on the planet. Luke 18, nine through 14 and others. And, and maybe they said it was some sarcasm. Are we blind also? Rhetorical question, because we know we're not, but we'll throw it out there. You know, sometimes when we go to talk to people, you and I as just Christians. Just Christians? Okay, for the sake of this sermon and we may talk to somebody who's a preacher in the denomination and they've had training at some seminary and they got you know this many letters after their name and they may look down on us because we're just people that read the word of god we haven't been trained we haven't been away to seminar seminary we haven't got you know theological phds and they may look down on us but these men here were doing the same thing here's here's this Jesus, here's, you know, this rabble of the earth. Are we blind also? Look at verse 41. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. In other words, if they truly couldn't see the truth, if the truth was just so incredibly, incredibly lost and unavailable to them, if it wasn't there and they just couldn't find it, it was impossible to see, it was impossible to get their minds around it, Jesus wouldn't held them accountable. Nope. He wouldn't have if you were blind you would have no sin if that was truly the case but now you say we see you are so convinced you know you you read the scriptures you you, you believe your leader to all of these people spiritually you say we see we know the truth he says therefore your sin remains because you really don't since they could see and claim to but at the same time simply chose not to, Jesus let them know they would be held accountable. It's the same way with us today. And so the question tonight is this. What about you? Can you see? Can you really see? If you are here tonight and you have never been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You've never repented of your sins, never repented, I'm sorry, never changed your mind and decided, I'm going to follow God. If you've never done that and been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, can you see? Acts 2:38, Acts 22:16, Matthew 28,18 through20. Can you see what the Lord said? You've got to do that. It's there, It's clear, it's unmistakable. If you've never done that, we'd love to have you be born again of the water and the spirit tonight by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you've already done that and you're one of God's people, and please keep in mind this lesson, let us never get to the point where we, we know that we can see, but what we see is not what God said. Let us always study the scriptures and be strong and be prepared to give an answer you need the prayers of the church to be stronger or you would be baptized into Christ we're gonna stand and sing a song and invite you to come down this center aisle and let let your needs be known please do so as we stand and sing